Father, it is a glorious thing when we behold you, when we think about how you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that you are unchanging, that you are pure, that you are mighty, that you are majestic. And Father, as we open your word today, would you open our hearts to receive your word as it is unfolded here before us? Father, guard uh, me from error. Give me clarity. Uh, Father, would, would you be glorified in this hour? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And for those of you who have come for week number two of the Imperial Church of the 4th and 5th century, my apologies I bring from Damon Cup, who is homesick. So you'll need to wait Uh, Well, two weeks uh, for that because we're baptizing people next week. Uh, But today, uh, we are instead going to be going through Psalm 139, uh, and uh, I hope that for you this will be like meeting up again with an old friend. Uh, If you don't know Psalm 139, uh, I hope that you will uh, get to know this psalm better and better Uh, in the days ahead, because it is a wonderful uh, explanation, exposition of of God's glory in so many ways. Uh, It is is all, it is David unfolding just the richness of God's perfections uh, in his omniscience, in his omnipresence, in his omnipotence. And then at the very end, we have some of of David's responses in light of these truths that we'll see. Uh, it's, a, it's a glorious psalm, and uh, none of us can do it uh, the justice that it needs, but uh, we can learn and we can grow from, from digging into this just a bit. So I look forward to this, uh, and let's start. I'm just going to read the entire psalm, and then we will circle back and we'll start marching through it chunk by chunk. So Psalm 139, to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there... Your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully 
and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen indeed. Um, so if I had to put a title on this psalm, I don't have to, but, but it strikes me. Um, it begins, you have searched me, and it ends with David crying, search me. And this is, this is one of those big themes we'll see throughout this. But we will begin in verses 1 through 6, uh, speaking of the Lord's omniscience. Um, Stuart already gave us uh, a little walkthrough of a portion, at least, of Psalm 139 uh, in the context of going through theology proper and, and these, this display of God's attributes. Um, so thank you, Stuart, for setting the table for that. Um, but here in the first six verses, uh, we have on display God's omniscience, which means what? God is, thank you, Andrew, God is all-knowing. That's right. Yeah, there is, God doesn't go to school. <laughs> God will never be surprised with any new information. Uh, God knows all things. And uh, what we will see is a summary statement that David is going to give us in verse 1. Then he's going to detail some specifics about this. And then he's going to give us, um, in verse 6, a sort of a summary of the matter and his own response to dwelling on, thinking on, reflecting on God's omniscience. So verse 1, um, David sums up the matter pretty succinctly. O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. Uh, so God has searched David and David knows this full well. Uh, the search it means a deep dive, an investigation, uh, an interrogation. Uh, think about a laboratory setting of putting something on the, on the slide and putting it under the microscope and examining it to its greatest detail, uh, fully characterizing everything that, the, that there is to know about David. God knows it full well. Uh, we'll probably talk about this more than once, but think about someone who knows you really well. Uh, if you're married, I hope that that is your spouse. 
if you're not, it might be a roommate, it might be a sibling, it might be your parents. That knowledge that they have of you just pales in comparison to the knowledge that the Lord has of you. He knows every detail in every aspect and every perspective that there ever was, could be, or will be about you. Uh, his, his knowledge just of you is infinite and thorough. That's astounding enough. We could stop there and, and uh, praise and amen the rest of the hour, but uh, he goes on. You have known me. Um, that is, the results are in. David is known to God. This is not just a, uh, a name on a list, not just a passing knowledge that, uh, oh yeah, uh, David, son of Jesse, yeah, I, I, know, I know him. I know the, yeah, I know, I know him. Uh, I, could, I could recognize him on the street. Um, uh, and what God knows about David is deep and meticulously perfect. In fact, uh, in verses 2 through 5, we get some examples of this. And feel free as we look at this to go ahead and just give your, put yourself in the I position. You know when I... Right? So this is David speaking of himself, but it could be any one of us that the Lord knows this fully. You know when I sit down and when I rise. Just my daily activities. Uh, there's, there is nothing hidden here. Uh, the beginning and, and ending of each day, uh, the Lord knows it all. You discern my thoughts from afar. So the discern here intends more than just mere awareness. But seeing the heart underneath that thought, uh, comprehending and understanding motives, fears, intentions, desires, even more than we will admit to ourselves. And, and why, why do we know that? What, is, what does Jeremiah tell us about the heart? It's deceitful, right? It, we can't trust it. We can't trust our own heart. But God knows our heart fully better than we know our own heart. Okay, so a quick question or application for you to think about here. Um, have you ever known a person who simply cannot get you? They just can't understand. Maybe it's just in the context of a conversation. You just, you just cannot communicate to them what you're trying to communicate. And it's clear, they just don't get you. Or maybe it's just more broadly. Uh, like, but boy, we, just, we, just, we just miss. We try and we just miss. We, we just can't communicate. We don't get each other. Now here's the, the thing that I want to caution all of us on. Because th those are frustrating, can be frustrating times. We can project that same thing onto our Heavenly Father and wrongly believe that he somehow misses us, that he somehow doesn't understand our situation. And we could wrongly think, well, Lord, if you only understood my situation here, uh, my pain that I'm in, the, the sorrow that I'm going through, you would act, you would change things, you would fix this. And you need to understand that the Lord already is there. In fact, he's ordained whatever uh, you are in today. He's not just merely observing. 
uh, though he is, he is ordaining and understands fully what's going on in your life. So just take care, brothers and sisters, that we never sort of put God in that same category of that guy that I just, all I can have it seems like is awkward conversations with. I've never, he never really understands me, okay? All right. Okay. We are at verse 3. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. So God is not only aware, but he is searching out, he is actively searching out David's path. This is the language of expedition and exploration. Uh, That is, God is saying to David, this path you're on, I know it. I made it. I know every little rock, every little sticker that'll get stuck in the bottom of your foot, every tree root that you could trip over, every beautiful flower I've put along the way, every, every shady spot where you can rest along the way. I know this. I have sought it out, and I know it full well. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, David says, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Um, there's no getting ahead, literally. There's no getting ahead of God. We talk about not running ahead of God. That's not what we mean <laughs> when we say don't run ahead of God because you absolutely cannot run ahead of God. God's knowledge is ahead of you. Um, but, and even before a word is on our tongue, the Lord knows it full well. Why is that? Why is, he, why is this true? Are there other scriptures that are coming to mind? How about when David was chosen and anointed? Any, anybody thinking of that? I am. Now you are. Turn with me. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. Samuel, the prophet, had been told to go to Bethlehem to seek out Jesse to... Uh, find a son of Jesse, and the Lord would point out to him the one who would be anointed to be the king of Israel. And uh, so Samuel shows up. Let's read in verses 6 and 7. When they came, that is the sons of Jesse, he, that is Samuel, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And it is ironic here, um, this double entendre, because the Lord is speaking to Samuel about what's going on in David's heart, right? I'm looking on the heart of this young boy, who actually at this point wasn't even in the lineup. It was the rest of the brothers. They had to go get David later, right? But who who else's heart is being examined at this moment? Samuel's, that's right, yeah. So Samuel is looking on the outside, God is looking at Samuel's heart and saying, stop that. Stop that. Uh, 
where we are looking at the heart. And so this is why, back to Psalm 139, um, that God can say, before a word is on your tongue, I, I know it all together because I know your heart. I know your heart. Okay. Verse 5. David continues to intensify his descriptions of, of God's omniscience. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Um, other translations may say you have encircled me, you have beset me, or you have enclosed me. Uh, but, but the truth is the same in, in all of those, that God is actively pressing in and guiding David. The two halves of this verse are really saying the same thing. This is Hebrew poetry giving us just a couple different perspectives on the same truth. You hem me in behind and before, you lay your hand upon me. This is God's active involvement in the life of David and guiding him, directing him, and um, protecting him. Uh, unlike Psalms like Psalm 27 or 57 where David speaks about armies encamped about me, enemies surrounding me, here, this is God surrounding me. This is God surrounding me. And it's a beautiful contrast. In fact, later, um, not so much later, but later, as the Jews were on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, one of the things that they sang was from Psalm 125, verse 2. Let me just read it. Um, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. And so they, they use this visual imagery of this city surrounded by, we would call them big hills. I don't know if we would put them, we'd call them mountains, but big hills. And they would say this is a picture of the way that the Lord surrounds his people, this from this time forth and forevermore. Um, okay. And with verse 6, uh, David describes that he is just awestruck by this information. He's, he's just dumbfounded. Uh, his description here is such knowledge. Thinking on these things is too wonderful. It is too filled with wonder. Right? That's what this word means here. It is too amazing for me. It is, it is too high. I can't even get there. This is not trig to the algebra student or, or calculus to the advanced math student. This is, this is a whole different thing that I just don't get and never will. I am not equipped to get this. When we think about the omniscience of God and then as David has narrowed it down to the particular protection of hemming me in before and behind and laying your hand upon me and guiding and protecting me, David's mind is blown, literally. He just, he just cannot grasp this. Um, okay. Job had a similar experience. Job 42.3, where... Uh, where Job says, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Once he underst understood to the best he could of what was going on in the mind of God. Paul agrees uh, with David in Romans 11.33, declaring that God's judgments are unsearchable and that his ways are inscrutable. 
or beyond finding out. Um, so this principle is so important for us, brothers and sisters. If you have an overly tame view of God, like he's your golf partner or your co-pilot or just your best buddy, none of those things are bad, but they cannot be your only view of God. That he's just like your big daddy in the sky. Okay, because that's, that's not the omniscient Lord of the universe. Yeah. Okay, we need to have a wonder that David has in the scriptures for God. All right, verses 7 to 12. David picks up about the Lord's omnipresence. And omnipresence is? He's everywhere at all times. That's right. That's. And again, he begins with, um, well, a summary statement in the form of uh, a rhetorical question. And then we'll answer through some examples. So verse 7, David asks, where shall I go from your spirit? Or, or where shall I flee from your presence? And he uh, demonstrates uh, how silly it is to think that there's, he's already done this, how silly it is to think that there's anything hidden from the Lord. And now he applies this sort of geographically, this same truth, and disabuses himself of the idea that there's anywhere that he can hide uh, from the Lord. He really, he's saying a statement, there is nowhere that I could be outside your presence. The, the answer to his questions are, is already, well, there's no place. And he's about to demonstrate that directionally for us. Right? If I go up, as high as I can go to the heaven, what's the answer? You're there. If I go down to the depths of Sheol, to the place of the dead, you're there. If I go to the east, where the try to catch the first rays of the sunrise, you're there. And if I ride those sunbeams, oh, as far as they'll go to the west, the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. Right? There's, there is nowhere uh, to escape the presence of the Lord. Now, how should we respond to that? <laughs> Say again. Shouldn't want to. Shouldn't want to. Oh, it's, it's, I saw the word awe, if I read your lips right, Deborah. It, it is an awesome thing, truly, to behold. And if you are not in Christ, it should terrify you. It is, it is truly a terrifying thing to know that there is no escaping the presence of the righteous judge of all. And it is amazingly comforting to know that you cannot escape the presence of your Lord if you are in Christ. Um, yeah. And more than presence, look down with me if uh, you're still following along. Uh, verse 10 more than just his presence, if that were not enough. Even in the uttermost parts of the sea, do you see this? His care. Even there. So, so, sorry, let me just rewind a little bit. The sea was a place of terror for the Israelites. It's where lots of bad things and bad people came from. 
The enemies were out in the sea. Streams, rivers, springs, wonderful. Sea, no good. All right? So from the uttermost parts of the sea, now if I'm there in a, in a dangerous place, verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me. Even there your right hand shall hold me. So it's not merely the presence, though that would be enough, but it's the attention and the love, the precious care of the Lord in a place of danger. Now, if that hasn't already uh, got your mind to Psalm 23 and you haven't written it down on your notes page, you should about now because we're reminded of that in the first four verses of Psalm 23, that, that this everywhere God is also our everywhere shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David goes on in verses 11 and 12 to extend the presence of God, not just by geography, um, but also within uh, the question or the states of light and darkness. So let me read 11 and 12 here for us. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. I should have read 11 first, sorry. If I say, <laughs> again, another sort of rhetorical statement, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be as night, then all these things will come to pass. That, And, and it's, it is fascinating because um, <clears throat> David says, well, he just spits out this really foolish question. He says, you know what? Yeah, I know you're here, but I'm just going to go over here and I'm just going to blow this lamp out. And now you can't see me anymore. <laughs> can't see me in the, in the physical, literal darkness, right? Um, it, it's silly, right? But David belabors the point over and over again that there is no such thing as darkness in God's vision, if we can anthropomorphize that way. There is no place where God does not see. Um, in fact, night is as bright as the noonday sun. And David belabors this point three different ways in verse 12. And uh, I have what was a really, really unwieldy quote from Calvin. And I have trimmed it down to be just a moderately unwieldy quote from Calvin in your student notes. <laughs> And we'll read it, and then I'll interpret it, and you'll read it three or four more times today, and, and I will too, but I think that it's really good. So this is Calvin in his commentary on these two verses, 11 and 12. If anyone should think it an unnecessary observation to say that as respects God, there's no difference between light and darkness. It is enough to remind him that all observation proves with what reluctance and extreme difficulty men are brought 
to come forward openly and unreservedly into God's presence. With our words, we all grant that God is omniscient. Meanwhile, we lack even that reverence of him which we extend to one of our fellow creatures. I'll I'll pause there. So the point is, so far, is that Calvin is saying we think more about what our friends see in our lives than what God sees in our lives. Okay, we're carrying on. We are ashamed to let men know and witness our delinquencies, but we are as as indifferent to what God may think of us as if our sins were covered and veiled from his inspection. Think about, I'm pausing again, sorry. Think about the effort that you put into your life to hide your sins from other people. And that's possible to do. For a time, for, you know, time and truth go hand in hand, but, but we hide a lot of our, our delinquencies, our sin, and we can fool ourselves into thinking we can do the same thing with the Lord. And that's a dangerous place to be, brothers and sisters. Let's finish this. This infatuation, if not sharply reproved, will soon change light, so far as we are concerned, into darkness. See, we... Pausing again, sorry. <laughs> We're creating our own fictitious darkness. Like, I can, I, can, I can think this long enough that I can believe that I can create a darkness around me by blowing out all the lamps, and God won't see what's in secret in my life. Okay. And therefore, David insists upon this subject at length in order to refute our false thinking. Let us make it our concern to apply the reproof given and stir ourselves up by them when we feel disposed to become falsely secure. All right, so that's a, that's a brainful right there of Calvin. Um, at least it's, it's more than my brain can handle at one time. But, but you get the, the point here is that we can falsely be less concerned uh, about how we live before the face of God than how we live before others. And both matter. And we can forget that God, with God there is no darkness at all. And we need to, if, you, if, you're, if you're hiding in some way from the Lord, you need to confess that. You need to come clean and change and repent. This is, this is the life of the believer is the life of repentance. Okay. All right. Third section here. We're in verses 13 to 18. And I made a copy error, didn't I? I did. This is not another section about God's omnipresence. What is it about? It's about his omnipotence. Thank you. His power. That's right. All right. I'm going to fix mine. All right, this is what happens at 9.30 at night on Sundays, or on Saturdays. Okay, so David is about to connect what he has just said um, about God seeing in the darkness with, a, with an amazingly personal example of his own life when he was formed in the darkness of his mother's womb. Okay, 
So verses 13 to 16, let me just read those again for us. For, right, so here we have the word that, that connects, so we know that, that David is doing something here, connecting with what he's just finished talking about, that there is no darkness uh, with God. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So, the best example that the Lord has given now to David about there is no darkness with God is the, the darkness of the creation of a human being in the mother's womb. It's just a glorious example that, that David gives. No one knew. Um, Jesse didn't know. Mrs. Jesse didn't know. We don't know her name. Uh, but God knew. In fact, God made this new life, this little David, in the darkness, in the secret place, and knit him together from his very center um, in, in a hidden place in the darkness where God had perfect vision and where God was reigning supreme, even in the creation of just this one little person. Um, God's power was on display in this, on display in this secret place. And God not only saw David, but he made him. Great word pictures formed him, knit him together, made him. Um, And David praises the Lord as he considers this fearful and wonderful work that he's done. And then in verse 16, we're sort of settled in this picture. And now all of a sudden, from little unborn baby David, it telescopes out immediately uh, to the full extent of David's life. Uh, David says, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, uh, when as yet there was none of them. So we go from David's first days or months in Mrs. Jesse's womb to the 70 years that he lived, the 25,000 plus days that, that the Lord had formed, catch the words, The Lord had formed these days before God had even done anything with his unformed substance. See that? The Lord's plan in verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book, every day, you have formed for me already. This is glorious truth of God's magnificent power. And it's just, this is just one man. This is just the life of one man. And here it is. I don't know, we have 80, 100 people in this room. Just, this is just happening all the time. This is the extent of the power and the meticulous care of the Lord. Okay. Worthy to stop for a second here and remind ourselves that it can be all too easy 
to worry or stew or fret over the days that are unknown ahead of us. Um, and, it, and, it, and it might be a concern over whether I'll even live to see that day. Or it might be what sort of condition will I, will I be in physically or financially or relationally when that day comes. Um, but the Lord has your days perfectly counted, every one of them. And so you need not fret. You need not worry. You need not stew. Uh, this is well in hand for you, my friend. Yeah. Um, okay. In fact, even if the Lord has you out in the uttermost parts of the sea, there his hand will be leading you and holding you every day that he has for you. All right, let's go on to verses 17 and 18, where <clears throat> David breaks out in doxology, uh, talking about how glorious these thoughts are, how precious to me are your thoughts. He simply cannot get over what is really being revealed to him and through him in this psalm, even as he's writing this. Um, some translations may render this in verse 17, how precious are your thoughts of me or for me or toward me. Um, the text doesn't demand that, that that's the sense here, but it does show us that David is he's grappling to reconcile the one who made all things and who has all knowledge and is everywhere all at once with also being the one who knit him together personally, privately, preciously in his mother's womb. And so he's, he's feeling the personal impact of this great and glorious omnipotence of this God. And it is overwhelming to him. He ends this in uh, the end of, of verse 18 the saying, I awake and I'm still with you. It's a, it's, it's, an, it's a curious statement. But I think what David is just saying, you are still here. You are still on the throne. You have not abandoned, abandoned me. I'm still yours. I wake up and you are still in charge. And that's the best news of all for David and for you and for me. It is amazing. All right. Let's wrap up the, the last part of this psalm. Um, verses 19 to 24, where all of a sudden, uh, we, we talk in the elders' uh, table, at the elders' table often about not jerking the wheel. And this feels like David has jerked the wheel <laughs> in this psalm. <laughs> Certainly you feel this every time you look at this psalm, Right? We get to, David has just finished talking about how precious are God's thoughts, how overwhelming. They're, 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 they're countless. They're like sand. I mean, even if you just had a, a pickle jar full of sand, how, how, how could you count it out? And just think of all the sands. So it's just the thoughts of the Lord. And then he says in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Um. And it is a jarring change of tone. Um, in fact, so jarring, I have heard more than once at the beginning of a worship service, this psalm read 
without verses 19 to 22 being included, just skipping from 18 to 23. Um, but let's detail what's going on here with some questions, and then we'll see if we can summarize this. This 19 to 22. So first, who are we talking about in verses 19 to 22? Who are we talking about? What do you see? Speak up. Sorry? The wicked. The wicked. That's right. The wicked men of blood in verse 19. Um, what are they doing? They're speaking against the Lord. That's right. Uh, they are his enemies. They're taking his name in, the Lord's name in vain. Um, verse 21, what else are they doing? They hate the Lord. They're rising up. They're, they're in rebellion against the Lord. Okay, so this is, this is who David is talking about. Enemies of the Lord, the wicked. Okay, question two. Are these people against David? Not a trick question. Are they against David? They certainly are in disagreement with David, that's for sure. But I would propose that they are not... Sorry? Go ahead. Yeah, we, David counts them as his enemies, that's right. But I would say that directly, we don't see a direct attack anywhere in these verses from the wicked to David directly. They... We see, we see attacks all over the place from them to David's God. But they're not, they're not encamped around David. They're not attacking David. They are attacking his God. Um, verse 21, specifically David says that he hates them or loathes them because of how they hate the Lord. Not because he's been attacked, but because... They hate the Lord. Verse 22 does say, I count them as my enemies. And again, it's on account of their hatred of the Lord. So, if you can follow the logic with me, they're not his enemies, but David counts them as his, his enemies. They haven't made themselves directly as we would think about it relationally his enemies, but, but because of the way they hate the Lord, David counts them as enemies. Okay. Um, third question. What does David want to do to them personally? What does David want to do to them personally? What do you got, Wendell? All right. That's right. That's right. Yep. Unlike us. <laughs> Unlike me. <clears throat> I won't put this on your shoulders. Unlike me. I would want to take my pitchfork and whatever, you know, and, and start swing, swinging around a sticky, you know, or a, a goat, an ox goat. Um, David, David has said he wants separation from them. He says, leave me. Depart from me. I don't, I don't want you around. Um, he wants no affiliation with them. He hates them, verse 22, with a perfect hatred or a complete hatred. But he is calling on the Lord to act. He's not doing this himself. 
He is calling on the Lord to vindicate his holy name through the slaying of the wicked. So, hopefully those questions can help sort of tease out what is and isn't here grammatically in these verses. As I wrap this up in these, from these verses, David has just extolled the perfections of the Lord, how his understanding is beyond all description, his presence is everywhere, his sovereign tender love uh, for David formed him uh, in his mother's womb and set forth every day of David's life. And David is in. He's on board. He is on the Lord's team, as it were. And so, if you're going to hate my God, you've made yourself my enemy as well. If you're going to take the Lord's name in vain and set yourself up in rebellion against the Lord, I, I want no part of you. Depart from me. So, and so, his allegiance to the Lord leaves no room for any neutrality. Uh, he... Uh, David has his eyes firmly set upon the Lord. And he will, he will not um, make camp with anyone who sets themselves up as the Lord's enemy. And so he, asks, he, he wants no part of it, any of it. Depart from me, you're my enemy because you've made yourself God's enemy. And Lord, vindicate your name. By doing away with these evil people. Yeah. Okay. Just that quickly, David brings the wheel back, verses 23 and 24. Um, because now he may be wondering is this wrong? If it, give me a heart checkup, Lord. Um, test me. Know me. I should turn the page so I can see those verses. There we are. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked or grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So he, has, he is asking God to search, to know, to try, to see, and to lead David. And I just want us to, as we close this up, I want you to see that he's just echoing what he's already said, right? Search, verse 1, you have searched me and known me. That's why I thought entitling this, you have searched me, search me. Um, no, verse 2, you discern my thoughts from afar. Um, lead, verse 10, even... In the uttermost parts of the sea, your hand shall lead me. See, verse 12, darkness is as light to you. And verse 15, uh, to try me, uh, my frame was not hidden. David's prayer in these last two verses uh, is a, just a simple and beautiful example of praying back to the Lord what the Lord had already told David about himself. You see that? And this is a great example. You want to you know how to pray? There's, we could spend a lot of time on it, but here's one thing. Pray the Lord's words back to him. You see what David did here in these two verses? He just rehearsed 
a bunch of this from verses 1 through 18 right back and applied it to his own life. Search me and know me. Try me. Test my heart. Let me know if there's any wicked way, any grievous way in me. And lead me uh, in the way everlasting. Okay. Let's pray. And then I've got a couple announcements. Father, thank you for this psalm. What glorious truths of your omniscience, your omnipresence, your omnipotence, your tender care, and your hand that rules all things. And Father, would you give us hearts like David that, are, that beat for you, that, that are on your team, that, that strive after you in the strength that you provide. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.